0: For public companies, the largest driver of D and O insurer losses is the shareholder class action.
1: What are the exclusions? What's the depth of
0: coverage? Don't just look at limits, deductibles, and price. As your company grows, you should be with a broker that can grow with you and properly address these
2: more complex exposures. Welcome to the Exchange Feed podcast. I'm your host, Arnie Goldstein. I'm the head of company services for the Pacific region for TSX and TSX Venture Exchange, and in this episode titled what you don't know about DNO, we're discussing the topic of DNO insurance. And in my role as an advisor to Toronto Stock Exchange and TSX Venture listed issuers for the last 15 years, it's become apparent that there's a significant knowledge gap regarding DNO insurance. Uh, there are knowledge gaps in what is DNO, what kind of coverage does a listed issuer need perhaps, what are the relevant parameters, is it based on market cap or revenue or, or something else. I'm going to discuss these topics um, and a few other things with my guests, so let's introduce them. Today, I have with me Barzin Asadi. He's the principal at Wilson M. Beck Insurance Services Specialty, Inc., and also John Orr, and he's a DNO product leader for uh, North America at WTW. So welcome.
0: Thanks, Arnie.
1: Uh, Thanks, Arnie.
2: It's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you here today. So first question, let's just start off with some basics. Um, what is DNO insurance? And it's, and I'll, and I'll spell it out. It's well, actually, I'll let you spell it out, barson
1: Perfect, thanks Ernie, I'm glad to be here. D and O insurance, are, are, are the, the full name is Directors and Officers Liability Insurance. It's meant to protect your organization or your, your entity uh, and your directors and officers from personal financial loss or corporate financial loss. This may result from allegations and lawsuits of things like wrongful acts mismanagement of funds, um, or allegations of of variety of, of abuse, um, the d o liability coverage um, has three sides. We call them sides A, B, and C. Sides A and B provide indemnification for what we call, uh, as per the policy, e- insured persons. And this list is quite broad. It, it, it includes the directors and officers uh, and expands to owners, employees, your, your in house legal cancel. Uh, it could include the state of the directors and officers um, and, and employees who have signing authority. Side A is for non indemnifiable losses. And then and under Side A, no deductible applies. Side B is for losses that are indemnifiable by the organization, and the policy deductible does apply. Side C provides indemnity for the actual organization for things that go on for dismissal, abuse allegations, um, and those could be verbal, physical, uh, sexual uh, in nature. Uh, And it could include things like derivative uh, class action lawsuits for publicly traded companies. The D&O liability policy also provides what we call balance sheet protection. And this is very uh, important to the board members and the and office of an entity. Uh, this is important. So in case of an insolvency or, or a bankruptcy, the entity can claim uh, unpaid taxes, wages, or dues to creditors on the DNO policy, obviously up to the policy
2: limits. So John, do you wanna, wanna uh, chime in here?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think just to to layer on, and just hit it spot on, that the policy really is a broad policy for directors and officers and, and the organization. And, and what I mean by that is that the policy will cover any wrongful act that is committed or allegedly committed in a director or officer's uh, official capacity of course there are exclusions that apply in their policy conditions but this isn't one of those policies where the perils that the policy covers have to be spelled out this is really covering any wrongful act which is defined very broadly to include really any act or omission statement misstatement uh committed in a in a in an official capacity and the only other uh thing that I would add is that as to the entity coverage itself, uh, side C, uh, it will vary. Uh, the scope of that coverage will vary among private companies and public companies. Uh, the private company policy really does have broad entity coverage. It will cover uh, not just investor-related claims, but it can cover any number of claims involving business torts uh, as well. On the other hand, the public company policy really will only cover the entity for shareholder related claims What the policy will cover securities claims. So good news is it's a broad policy. It is great news that it covers non indemnified losses uh, to protect the personal assets of individuals and it uh, bolsters it with that balance sheet protection as well.
2: Thanks so much. Um, I just want to pause here for a second and and do a uh, a jargon check can i get a definition of indemnifiable versus non-indemnifiable for our listeners
0: well i'll 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 start um that the question of whether a company is permitted legally to indemnify uh is is an important one because it's really as you are suggesting here defines what the uh what the scope of that side a coverage is uh indemnification rights are typically very very broad for directors and officers they typically enjoy very broad indemnification rights but there will be just a a small portion of claims uh, in which the company might not be able to indemnify legally. And an example might be in the event of company's insolvency or the filing of bankruptcy, uh, where there may be uh, certain legal protections uh, for debtors in the case of uh, insolvency and bankruptcy, uh, where the assets of the corporation might not be used Uh, to indemnify a director or officer. In the U.S., it's common for shareholder derivative suits to um, be non-indemnifiable, at least to the extent that settlements or judgments are imposed. Uh, And that's because of the nature of a shareholder derivative suit. They're suing in the name of the company, on behalf of the company, and for the company then to indemnify these settlements and losses with the money coming back to the company, uh, that circularity of payment has given rise to some restrictions on indemnification. So it, it is a rare, rare situation where a loss is non-indemnifiable. But if you think about it, the significance of this coverage is, if you don't have side A in the policy, you don't have that coverage, and we know the company isn't able to back you up and indemnify you, then it's your personal assets that are at risk. And we really, really want to ensure that DNO insurance is first and foremost protecting the personal assets of these individuals.
2: That might have something to do with the fact that it's the individuals that are often calling me and asking these questions about insurance versus perhaps on on behalf of, of the... Uh, uh the issuer itself Parson, did you want to add something
1: yes and for the issuers that are that are you know going or in the process of potentially going public putting together a board it's important to speak with the legal counsel and put together an, an, an indemnity agreement so if and when a claim or a loss does arise there is a written contract that you know sets them more at ease at exactly what that individual director officers being indemnified for and what they're not being indemnified for it, it makes the whole situation a lot easier to handle
0: if i could add one thing it's that the policy side a of the policy shouldn't just cover these losses that are non-indemnifiable that is to say a company is not legally permitted to indemnify it should also cover these situations where The individual simply isn't being indemnified. In other words, the loss might be legally indemnifiable, but a company may decide under any given number of circumstances that they simply are not going to indemnify. Uh, The policy should respond to that situation as well, again, to step in and protect the director's and officer's personal assets first and foremost, they may they the insurance company may go back to the company to try to recover perhaps a deductible saying this was an indemnifiable loss but at least that's between the carrier and the company the individual is protected so policies should be covering not just non-indemnifiable losses but non-indemnified losses as well
1: Arnie, a great example of this of what just John pointed to is potentially allegations of sexual abuse or assault, where the company for the sake of saving his reputation, just like John said, might legally be able to but does not want to show that they're protecting a director to save the company's reputation. So that's a a perfect example of uh, what John just pointed out to and it's a very, very important thing to remember
2: so we've kind of fallen into the second question which is really what kind of coverage does a company need and um, john any other things to add to what we've just discussed
0: the answer to that will vary depending on the type of company but every company and i mean every company should have this side a coverage that we talked about at a minimum even if the company believes it can self-insure losses to its balance sheet, if it cannot indemnify its directors or officers in a claim for any given reason, uh, as I said, the company could be insolvent, it could be a shareholder derivative suit, then the personal assets of these individuals are at risk. So any DNO program. Um, that a company develops must have that essential coverage. But for purposes of the subject today, we're talking about listed companies, public companies. We're also talking about private companies that might contemplate going public. And for these companies, top of mind after side A would be this side B and side C coverage uh, for the company's liability exposures uh, to public shareholders. Uh, for public companies, the largest driver of DNO insurer losses is the shareholder class action. This is a type of lawsuit that is most prominent in the U.S. and there we see about 200 cases filed per year on average. We, we had a blip in recent years where we actually had over 400 filed, but we're now down around the historic averages of about 200. So lower frequency than other forms of litigation. But the average settlement of each case is in the tens of millions of dollars. So severity is a concern. And without Side B and Side C coverage, companies can experience a significant hit to their balance sheet. Uh, The last thing I would say is that companies going public absolutely need to work with their brokers to ensure a proper transition of coverage from the broader private company policy to the new public company policy, which is a little bit more restrictive. Um, this transition will include ensuring extremely clear language as to which policy, the public policy or the private policy will cover this going public exposure. So statements made in offering promotions, roadshows and, uh, and public filings as well.
2: So rolling into the next question, What are some other critical things that issuers really need to consider when they're looking at DNO insurance? I know we've talked about the A, B, and C sides, but what else should be on that checklist or that shopping list of things that you you need to kind of consider?
1: Barzan? Thanks, Arnie. There are, I would say, six main categories that an organization's board would want to consider when thinking about purchasing dno liability insurance the first two go go kind of hand in hand it's selecting the the, the correct broker or brokerage and then selecting the correct insurance company to partner with this is important because brokers and brokerages and insurance companies specialize in different industries so a broker who's very experienced in placing DNO insurance for cannabis companies might not be the correct and experienced broker for placing DNO insurance for mining companies. So just like when you interview your lawyers and accountants to see what their expertise level and expertise are, you should do the same thing here. Interview a few brokers, ask about the relationships with their insurance company partners, and based on those, select the correct partners to represent you in the insurance market as john pointed to uh, in the last question timing of when to buy the dno insurance is also important do you want virtual coverage uh when you're private going public or do you just want to make sure you're covered after you've gone public the budget uh, and the financial situation of the company is very important you know we always recommend buying more DNO insurance because the severity of a loss could be huge, but that's always limited to how much the entity and the organization has budgeted for insurance purposes. Depending on the industry that the organization operates in, the DNO liability premiums and associated costs, uh, for example, taxes on unlicensed insurance are used, can add up very, very, very quickly, so it's prudent that the executive team, once interviewing and selecting their, their broker and insurer, get an idea for what the, the cost is going to be and then budget accordingly. Uh, limits of insurance. As I said, you know, more is always better, but at some point you're gonna to come to a realization where you know more is gonna cost you more money. So, as and this is a this is a big question we're always asked: how much liability, how much DNO liability insurance should I buy? We normally use a rule of thumb of 5% of asset size if the organization is pre-revenue, or 5% of market cap if the organization is post-revenue or has already gone public. And again, that's a rule of thumb. The final decision is going to come down to, like we said, budget and the comfort level of the executive team on the limit they actually want to go with. And finally, the, the territory of where you're buying your dno liability policy is important different territories canada versus the united states have different wordings. so depending on where you can set up your parent code uh, and if you have that ability i would say look and speak with your broker representative and see which policy wording gives you the broader or broadest coverage and set up your Parent call co- in that territory and get more bang for your buck on SS.
2: Thank you very much. Uh John, thoughts?
0: Yeah, at the top of the list of uh of things to consider uh in addition to just making sure you have the side A, side B, side C in place. I I certainly think uh Barzan's list is a solid one. I I would just echo or emphasize the quality of the insurer uh, and the quality of the coverage and so what I mean by that is the financial stability of the insurer uh, all the way over to breadth of coverage being offered and and touched on that. Of course how much insurance to buy is important and the answer to that will depend on the size of the company, as well as other very specific risk factors. What industry is the company in? Companies in some industries uh, are more prone to claims uh, than others and and absolutely work with your broker on that. Uh, On the question of how broad is the coverage, uh, Barzin's right that US and Canadian wordings are going to be different. Wordings out of London are going to be different. Um, So not all policy forms cover the same things, even within those jurisdictions. Uh, They aren't going to cover all these things as broadly uh, as other markets. Insurers might have more exclusions, or they might uh, have creative wording that makes their exclusions a little bit more broad, so less favorable. Uh, With larger private companies and certainly public companies, the coverage should be subject to meaningful enhancements. So you shouldn't just take an off-the-shelf policy form. Um, And and those enhancements may entail modifications to coverage through what are called endorsements. Other policies call them riders. Policy language matters and could make the difference between a seven or even eight-figure claim Uh, being covered or not. So brokerage specialists should be engaged to scrutinize any proposed wordings and be in a position to negotiate
2: favorable changes. Great. Barzan, did you want to add something to that?
1: Yes. And John brought up a very good point. You rarely are going to see an apples to apples comparison. So, when the board and the executive team is looking at different DNO options, make sure to ask your broker, just like John said, what are the exclusions? What's the depth of coverage? Don't just look at limits, deductibles, and price.
2: Okay, this is very interesting. Now, John, Barzan made a comment just a few minutes ago about. you know, market cap size or whether your revenue or pre-revenue or just about to go public or have just done it. But um, any other parameters to, to add into that mix? Uh, thoughts there? Well,
0: for private companies, it most often will be based on revenues and other financial metrics. You may be a pre-revenue country and pro forma financials will be uh, important as well as what's the business plan um, but other financial metrics, assets, industry, I mentioned industry can be important. The number and location of employees, that's particularly important for private companies. Uh, but for public companies, underwriting factors certainly include market cap. And why is that? Uh, again, the largest driver of DO insurer losses is the securities class actions where damages. Are measured in terms of shareholder losses. And shareholder losses are derived from the loss in market cap value resulting from some negative event. Perhaps it's a product recall or a financial restatement. And the stock drops, the market cap goes down, shareholders lose money, and shareholders sue. But as I also mentioned, what industry are you in? A life sciences company, as a general matter, may be more prone to securities litigation than say a manufacturer or utilities, just two examples. D&O underwriters may also look at other financial metrics such as debt, price earnings ratios, claims history, quality and experience of management, recent company performance, and what is its going forward strategy. Ultimately, I would say insurers need to be viewed similarly to the way investors are viewed, because at its core, the DNO underwriter is a kind of investor. It is taking a risk by putting up capital in the form of insurance limits, and its decision to do so and at what price is based on a similar assessment that an investor may take. So all of these things go into uh into the way uh DNO insurers think about uh the risk more deeply.
2: Sounds like there are multiple factors that you need to look at in terms of making these assessments. Um, and again, I, I'm going to assume that at times the the cost of these this insurance is not immaterial, particularly for smaller issuers. Um, are there ways to save cost on 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 this type of a, of an insurance, or or what kind of advice would you give? Uh, Arson. So
1: John pointed out to this, and I I 100% agree. The industry that that entity or organization operates in will very much dictate, uh, in any given kind of calendar year, let's call it, what the insurance premiums could be. Uh, As an example, if you look at the the cannabis industry over the last few years, uh, once it was legalized uh, out of the 26 publicly traded companies, 19 had class action lawsuits. That heavily affected the amount of money insurers paid out for legal costs, defense costs, and that affects insurance premiums in, in the next year. So those, the annual premiums crept up quite quickly. If you, for example, look at the junior or exploration mining space we've seen over the last year and a half two years prices double and then half again so i i would say the first and foremost you know you're going to get into business ask call a call a broker and ask call them maybe two or three even i would say and ask what is it that i'm going to be expecting to see in terms of insurance costs and make sure you take an aggressive number on that put it into your budget That's the, I would say the best case scenario going into a business. You're already into it. Brokers can play with deductible levels. We can play with licensed versus unlicensed insurers. So there are metrics and and, and situations we can use to play around with, with the cost, but it's gonna have a ceiling and floor within what we can do. The more time you give your broker, to go procure a DNO liability quote for you, the better it's gonna be for you because the broker has more chance to negotiate with the insurance companies. The less time you give them, obviously that power of negotiation is not so much in the hands of the broker. So as an issuer, you're gonna see a potentially a higher premium. So I would say if I was gonna put all this into one assets, I would say, talk to your broker first. Get an idea, give them time to do what they need to do.
2: John, thoughts on on cost mitigation approaches around the DNO insurance space?
0: Well, I certainly agree with everything Barzan said that the more time you give your broker, the more opportunity they will be able not just to negotiate with a carrier, but but Barzin mentioned insurance markets plural. It is very important. Um, to maximize your savings opportunity by marketing your program to multiple carriers, and especially for private companies considering going public or or certainly for public companies periodically to make that a very, very broad marketing effort. What carriers are, are good fits for you? And it's not just going to be price, it's also going to be coverage, but you can really, Play markets off of each other in terms of what those prices are and what those uh, deductibles are. The more competition, uh, the better that is going to be for you. Uh, but nonetheless, it's going to be hard to avoid the reality that DNO insurance is still costly. Um, premiums can be high. The retentions, which are it's referred to as self-insured retentions, that can be thought of as deductibles. Um, and you, you can play around with fewer limits, maybe taking on higher deductibles, um, but companies can also look at different program structures. So you can buy less limit for your traditional side A, B and C policy. You might have an ABC policy and you might then have excess ABC policies depending on the size of your company. But then uh, you might want to look at reducing the amount of side A, B and C coverage, and then buy just side A policies on top of that. Uh, So that maximizes the amount of limit dedicated to the individuals, um, perhaps by reducing some of the balance sheet protection in the policy, and if there is financial justification for that, that could be a way of savings because if you're just buying some side A, you're not buying that additional B and C and you have the protection you need. Um, if you have a healthy balance sheet, you could take a chance on, You know, it's often against broker advice, but self-insure the balance sheet risk altogether, have a side A only program. But you cannot repeat, cannot under-insure the side A exposure. This is to protect, the personal assets of influential people in your organization. Uh, There could be other solutions for savings, but it can get rather complex solutions mostly for larger companies such as captives or alternative risk transfer solutions. But most smaller companies and uh, public companies that are not very, very large public companies will mostly be able to play around with limits and deductibles, and then program structure options.
2: So, a lot of moving pieces and a complex situation. And and Barzan, I heard you say a few moments ago about talking to your brokers. Um, what's your advice around brokers?
1: That's a uh, that's a good question, Arnie. As as I pointed out before, brokers have different specialties, different brokerages um, work in different industries. So based on the industry your organization is in, research, talk to your peers, see who they've spoken to, and definitely, definitely interview some brokers to get a sense for the individual, the brokerage house, what their expertise level is. If you like that individual, you know, they could be the best in the business, but if you don't like them, you're not gonna get along. There, they are a partner, they're your risk team that you're outsourcing to. If you can't get along with them, it's not gonna work out well. During that interview process, ask about the broker's relationship with their underwriters. Are they newer in the business? Are they more veterans in the business? I can't overstate how important that relationship between the broker and the underwriter is i've had situations where after some brokers have tried uh and we were involved because of that relationship we were able to provide a solution to a a issuer where they were previously not able to get any DNL option so that relationship is key i would ask for referrals from the Broker or brokerage house as who they've worked with, um, reference letters are a great way to go. So I would definitely say find the right broker for you, and then let them do what they do best.
2: Now there's some risks around representation. There, did you want to talk about that? So,
1: in North America, uh, and I would say in, in the majority of 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 the world where where insurance uh, is practiced there is rule and regulation about how brokers can approach insurers. For example, in Canada, uh, once a broker approaches an insurer, that insurer is quote unquote reserved to that broker and other brokers don't have access to that insurance company. And this is why it's very important to interview your brokers first and let the one that you've selected who you think is best for you to, to represent you to the insurers. And this happens a lot. And this is mainly because of lack of knowledge and education. An insurer or, or a private company about to become uh, an insurer might go to two to three different brokers, tell them some me options. These brokers will go out to insurance companies, uh, tell a story about the business and try to procure quotes for their clients. What happens when underwriters see multiple brokers approach them on a single client. First, this is an indication to the underwriter that the client or the issuer or the private company, it's new at this. They, they didn't understand the insurance market space. Now, the bigger problem is if different brokers tell a slightly different story to the same insurer or even to other insurers. I remember these underwriters speak to each other, they're colleagues and they're risk averse by nature. If they get different stories they might back out from providing terms or they might provide unfavorable terms as in more expensive premiums higher deductibles less broad coverage that's why it's very important to you know select the right broker let them approach you on the in the insurance marketplace let there be one
2: story so the important safety tip here is select your broker first and then let them start shopping the market for you. Exactly. John, any final thoughts here?
0: Well, I, I it, it also starts with who your current broker is. So any public company or any company looking to go public, uh, absolutely needs next level guidance. Uh, they need the expertise of a well-respected broker in this space, bars. In ac- absolutely right. But for many smaller companies, they may have been working with a smaller, perhaps a local or regional broker, uh, maybe somebody they've been friends with for a while and they mostly work with other smaller companies. And there's a lot of good guidance, tremendous value, coming from them on coverage for smaller companies. Relationships with underwriters in that space will matter. Uh, But as you grow, your needs change. Who are the new key underwriters? Who are the underwriters? Who are the carriers that write larger companies? Uh, Who are the more influential underwriters within those carriers? Um, And and these are the carriers that may be better at underwriting growing companies companies all of that changes too as your as your needs change Uh, in the transition from private to public there's a lot of risk that coverage gaps could surface if you don't have the right expert so a larger broker with greater market level uh, market leverage and more sophisticated specialists all of that is important and in going through the process of selecting a broker Um, In addition to what Barzin has mentioned, your board members may also be directors or officers of other companies, and you can ask them about the brokers for those companies. Uh, Things you might want to look for as a larger company, especially one who is listed or going public, um, the quality of the placement team, the expertise, the experience level of the actual brokers doing the negotiation in the market then the quality of that firm's claims department, uh, whether they charge separately for claim services, whether they have hourly caps, things like that. You never want your insurance to be triggered in a claim, Uh, but if you do have a claim, you need to make sure, not just that your policy is broad, but that your brokerage firm has the capability to support you there. And then finally, I would say, how do you analyze my risk and come up with limits recommendations? Hopefully uh, they've got tools in place to do that, perhaps modeling the risk and coming up with coverage options that are supported by data, uh, predictive modeling outcomes. There really is a lot that does and should go into this, uh, but as your company grows, you should be with a broker that can grow with you and properly address these more complex exposures.
2: Well, I think this has been a fantastic discussion. Um, I'd like to thank you both for participating today. Uh, for any of the listeners that would like to get in touch with either of our guests, we'll we'll link their contact information in the description below. And thank you very much for joining me today and uh, we'll see you on the markets.
0: Thanks Arnie, great to be with you.
2: Thank you Arnie.